Here's a phrase you can hear over and over again for the next, uh, oh, I don't know, eight months to a year, maybe longer. And I'm glad those of you that are part of Navigators, uh, you're here because I wish somebody would have hammered this away when I was in college or when I was a single young adult. And that is this. The goal of any Christian should not be to find the church that you like and sit in the back pew. The goal is to engage the mission. Let me say that again. Christianity is defined in the Bible, New Testament Christianity. It's not to find a church you like and sit in the pew, but it's to engage the mission. Say, well, Peter, what does it look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It's not enough to be involved in small groups. Because it's amazing that you could be involved in small groups and still have a very consumer mentality, yes? It could be all about me. The goal is to engage the mission. Because here's the thing about people that are, that are engaged in mission. They serve. And people who serve are passionate about the mission. They get the mission. They're doing the mission. They're on mission. And the life of the church and what this is all about comes to life. So I'm going to say it again. The goal of any Christian, it's not my opinion or opinion. The goal of any Christian, according to scriptures, is not to find the church that you like and sit in the pews, but to engage the mission of the church. And the only way to engage the mission is to serve. Now, I'm not saying that all of y'all need to sign up for new community, but I'm just saying this. Whichever church you go to, Whichever church you're a part of, remember that the goal is not to find the church you like and sit in the pews, but to engage the mission. Amen? There's going to be multiple opportunities for you to engage the mission. For those of you that are sitting there going, I don't know, what does that mean for me? Opportunities to engage the mission are never lacking in this church. When the opportunities are provided, Take action. I want to read you a, a quote from a, an old anonymous Hasidic rabbi who on his deathbed said this, when I was young, I set out to change the world. When I grew a little older, I perceived that this was too ambitious, so I set out to change my state. This too, I realized as I grew older, was too ambitious, so I set out to change my town. When I realized I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. Now as an old man, I know that I should have started by changing myself. If I had started with myself, maybe then I would have succeeded in changing my family and the town or even the state. And who knows? Maybe even the world. We've been talking about emotionally healthy spirituality for that reason. We believe that God has a mission for every single one of us that is on this earth with breath in our lungs. We're called to lay down ourselves for others but as I've been saying over and over again you need a self to lay down first what we've been talking about is much larger than just here and us but the reality is our ability to fulfill the mission that God has for us is critically dependent on you and your health your spiritual maturity emotional maturity And we've been saying that there is this vital link between spiritual maturity and emotional health. You can't be spiritually mature without being emotionally mature healthy. And we've defined emotional health or emotional maturity as someone who loves well. Someone who loves well and is self-aware. Getting used to this iceberg, 
This iceberg is a picture of our lives where so much of our focus is on the tip of the iceberg, what people observe, but much of the transformative changes that God wants to do in us lies underneath. And we've been saying that we need to be rigorously honest about what lies underneath. And I'm going to ask you again today to be rigorously honest about what lies underneath. Because that's where transformation and change happens. We began this journey by uh, maybe debunking uh, a mentality in the church. And that is this. We love theology. New community loves learning. Many of us come from highly educated backgrounds. But the drawback of that is for those of us that grew up in church, we equate spiritual maturity with Bible knowledge. And I've been saying over and over again that there is no correlation between Bible knowledge and automatic spiritual maturity. You and I know of people who know a lot about the Bible but are self-righteous, are unloving, unkind, not compassionate, and furthest thing from what Christ would do. And oh, by the way, they existed during the time of Jesus and Jesus reserved the harshest comments for them. They were called the... Pharisees. Bible knowledge doesn't equate to spiritual maturity. How does the Bible define spiritual maturity? It defines spiritual maturity as what? Love. Love. Over and over again, you find these kinds of exhortations. Ephesians 5.1, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. You need that if you're going to love. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifices to God. The goal of the Christian life, the goal of the Christian life is to love well. The goal of the Christian life is becoming more like Christ and being more like Christ entails loving out. The essence of true spirituality is being able to love like Christ, but you cannot love well if we are not emotionally healthy. Um, I, I, I debated whether I should do this because of time, but I do want to uh, do this. Um, Peter Scazzaro, in his book, which we've been following somewhat, um, uh, defines four stages of emotional maturity. And I want to I just quickly read really quick these descriptions. Just give you a picture of where are you, where am I. He defines four categories. One, an emotional infant. Can you put that up there? Emotional infant. Oh, okay. It's not on the screen back there. Can we wait to uh, get, get on the screen back there, James, somebody, while we're going? Okay, emotional infant. How do you know if you're an emotional infant? Like a physical infant, I look for other people to take care of me more than I look to care for them. I often have difficulty in describing and experiencing my feelings in healthy ways and rarely enter the emotional world of others. I'm consistently driven by a need for instant gratification, often using others as objects to meet my needs, and I'm unaware of how my behavior is affecting hurting them. People sometimes perceive me as inconsiderate, insensitive, and self-centered. Any emotional infants? Okay. Next category, emotional children. Like physical children, when life is going my way and I'm receiving all the things that I want and need, I'm content and seem emotionally well-adjusted. However, as soon as disappointment, stress, tragedy, or anger enter the picture, I quickly unravel inside. I interpret disagreements as personal offense, and I'm easily hurt by others. When I don't get my way, I often complain, throw an emotional tantrum, withdraw, manipulate, drag my feet, become sarcastic, or take revenge. I have difficulty calmly discussing with others what I want and expect from them in a mature, loving way. Any emotional children? Emotional adolescents? Like a physical adolescent, I know the right ways I should behave in order to fit in mature adult society. I can feel threatened and alarmed inside when I'm offered constructive criticism, quickly becoming defensive. I subconsciously keep records on the love I give out so I could ask for something in return at a later time. When I'm in conflict, I might admit some fault in the matter, but I will insist on demonstrating the guilt of the other party, proving why they're more to blame. Because of my commitment to self-survival, I have trouble really listening to another person's pain, disappointments, or needs without becoming preoccupied with myself. Does that response mean you guys are saying, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, get to the adult? Is that what this means? <laughs> okay, I didn't think so. And then you have emotional adults, which has been the goal of what it is that we're trying to do. 
I could respect and love others without having to change them or become critical and judgmental. I don't expect anyone to be perfect in meeting my relational needs, whether it be my spouse, parent, friends, boss, or pastor. I love and appreciate people for who they are as whole individuals, the good and the bad, and not for what they can give me or how they behave. I take responsibility for my own thoughts, feelings, goals, and actions. When under stress, I don't fall into victim mentality or blame game. I could state my own beliefs and values to those who disagree with me without becoming adversarial. I'm able to accurately self-assess my limits, strengths, and weaknesses, and freely discuss them with others. Deeply in tune with my own emotions and feelings, I could move into the emotional world of others, meeting them at the place of their feelings, needs, and concerns. And I'm deeply convinced that I'm absolutely loved by Christ and that I have nothing to prove. Was that? That sounds nice. <laughs> Wait a minute. Which one of us is sitting here, and as I just read the description of the emotional doubt, which one of us is sitting there going, ah, it's not really interesting to me. And there's not a deep hunger in us to say, I want to be all that God has created me to be so I can love people well. The challenge, though, is this. Um, when we accept Christ, growing into an emotional adult or someone who's emotionally healthy doesn't automatically happen. Don't you wish it did? And the challenge and problem is this, is that you and I spent thousands of dollars and countless hours developing skills in our lives and all other facets. But when it comes to this, boy, I'll tell you why. The challenge for us has been how do we grow into a spiritually mature follower of Jesus who is emotionally healthy. Uh, Peter Scazzaro in his book, real quick, and I need to dump into our, our scripture, he talks about practical ways. As you can notice, I, I, I haven't done really the practical things because you can read the book and do that for yourself. I was sharing with somebody, you know, when I was in college, the thing that I hated most classes was when I would go to the class and the professor would literally go over the books that he assigned in lecture and I said, why am I here? So intentionally, I've not done that. I'm not going to go over stuff that you're reading. I've intentionally tried to lay down biblical theological foundations and have you talk about the practical stuff as you read through the book. So he talks about in the book how to talk about unmet expectations and assumptions and how that is really hard on relationships. He talks about genuinely entering into others and listening well. And there's really good practical steps. But today, I want you to open your Bibles with me. To Luke chapter 10, where Jesus, where Jesus outlined what it meant to love well. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 is where we pick up. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Expert in the law. We think law, we think civil law. This is not a civil lawyer. He is an expert in the law of Moses. He's a biblical expert, a religious scholar. And you need to pay attention, actually, to every word in this text. The Bible says he stood up, which is a sign of respect. And he calls Jesus a teacher, which is also a sign of respect. So this is not a guy who is just coming. He respects Jesus, but he has an agenda. He wants to test Jesus. Why? Jesus is constantly going around saying stuff like this. You could enter the kingdom of God now. You could enter the kingdom of God. You could enter the kingdom of God today. And all the religious stars said, whoa, 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 hold on a minute, hold on a minute. They said, our worldview tells us that this is how God works. God basically looks at the righteous deeds that we've done, the extent to which you follow the law, and the extent to which we didn't. And at the end of time, there's this sort of cosmic scale where God outweighs the good and the bad. And if you have more of the good, then you get saved. If you don't, you're not. So what is this language about being able to enter the kingdom of God now? So he's trying to trap Jesus, saying something along the lines of, you know, it's really not that important that you follow the law as long as you're just a good person. And uh, Jesus has um, 
news for this guy. Verse 26, he says, what is written in, in the law? By the time, by the way, anytime Jesus in the New Testament asked a question, or somebody asked a question, and Jesus responded with a question, it meant trouble. Yeah, it meant you're in trouble, right? So Jesus asked him a question. What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? And to answer a question like that, the teacher of the law would have essentially have to spend six weeks reciting the entire Old Testament. Or he did what most of the rabbis did, which is they summarized it in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're taking notes, they come from two Old Testament passages. To love your neighbor is from Leviticus 19.18 and to love God appears in Deuteronomy 6.5. Now, here's the thing though. Pause for a moment. What do these laws actually mean? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. William Templeton said this, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. That is so, uh, when you're standing on a corner for hours, waiting with nothing to read, with nothing to listen to, with nothing to da-da-da-da-da, when you're waiting on a corner with nothing to do, there's nothing interfering in your mind, there's nothing capturing attention, where does your mind automatically, naturally, and instinctively go to? Is it God? When you stand in a corner with nothing to do for hours, does your mind naturally and automatically inevitably go to God? Is it the attributes of God? Is it the beauty of God? Is it the thoughts about God? Is that where you and I naturally, inevitably, instinctively go to? Do you know what it means to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It means to love God so much that he dominates your solitude. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength means when you've got nothing to do, your thoughts automatically, instinctively go to God and his beauty, his attributes, his goodness. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength means, listen to this, means that your preeminent thoughts are about him and the highest desires of your hearts are about him. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength means that you are content in all circumstances. Why? Because at all times, because you have him, you always have what you most want. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength means, as the psalmist cried, what? Bitter is one day in your courts than what? Than a thousand elsewhere. Do you love God? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? It doesn't mean, uh, notice Jesus doesn't say love your neighbor more than yourself. This is important. He says, no, love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It means, I'm going to talk to this group right here. It means meet the needs of your neighbor with all the speed, with all the energy, with all the joy that you meet your own needs. I will say that again, Carlton. (laughs) To love your neighbor is not a feeling, people. To love your neighbor means you meet their needs with as much joy, speed, energy, passion, and power as you meet your own needs. That's what it means to meet your neighbors. When somebody else gets something that you desperately wanted, you are just as happy for them as you would have been for yourself because your happiness is intertwined with their happiness. Now, if you're not feeling the weight of that, if you're not feeling, the, if you're sitting there going, all right, so, so what? You will feel the weight of it because this is what Jesus says in verse 26, uh, 28 to, to the lawyer. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this <laughs> and you'll live. He's saying, do that and then you can be saved. Love God so much that he dominates your solitude. He's preeminent in your thoughts and your heart. And yeah, love your neighbor as yourself with all the speed, with all the joy, with all the energy and passion that you meet your own selfish needs. Do that and you can be saved. Here's what Jesus is saying. Please listen carefully. He's saying the way way that the law outlines his life, it's absolutely right. Jesus is not 
Jesus is not downing the law of God. He's saying this is absolutely good and it's absolutely right. You should love God like that because how else do you treat someone who has given you life and breath and everything? It's only reasonable that you treat someone, that you love someone who has given you life and breath with that kind of love. And how else should you treat your neighbors except to treat them in a way that you would treat your own self? The law outlines a way of life that is absolutely good and absolutely right. But, Jesus says, though the law is the way of life, it's not the way to life. What do I mean? The problem is not the law. The problem is what? You and I can't say it. We can't do it. Church, are you with me this morning? Is there anybody here this morning that says, I'm going to save myself. Here's what I'm going to save myself. I'm going to love God in a way that he dominates my solitude. He is absolutely the highest place. And I will absolutely love my neighbor with all the sweet joy, energy, and passion that I love myself. Is there anybody who could confidently say, I do that all the time? Answer? Oh. But, verse 29, the lawyer wanted to, say it with me, just... Say it like you mean it. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? He's somebody who what? Wants to achieve acceptance before God on his own merit. And I say, so who's my neighbor? I can do that. I can do that. But who's my neighbor? Now, here's what he is saying. Jesus, let's, uh, let's whittle this down a little bit on who is my neighbor, Okay. And so that I can do it. So it's reachable. So that the requirements of the law is doable. And by the way, at this time, at this time, if you know, there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And what the teachers of the like, this guy, and other rabbis did was, they then extrapolated from these 613 commandments, hundreds, thousands of other commandments, so that they can make some of these laws doable, manageable, reachable. They actually had a word for that called the halakha, which became as authoritative as the Bible. And do you know why they did that? Do you know why we do that? Do you know why they did that? Do you know why we do that? Because we want to justify ourselves. Because obeying a bunch of rules that we make up makes us acceptable before God. And Jesus is trying to get this guy to see There's no way you can justify yourself with God. You can't make yourself acceptable with God. Come on, who could love God like this? Who could love our neighbors like this? You can't even love your wife like this. Come on. I'm talking to myself right now. So stop it. Jesus is trying to humble this man and Jesus is trying to get through to some of you today that unless you and I are humbled by the love that God requires, we'll never be humbled enough to receive the love that God offers in the gospel. See, what should the lawyer have said to Jesus? He should have said what you and I should say, which is, I can't justify myself. What do I have to do? Then Jesus would have said what he said in many other places. It's only by the mercy of God that you could justify yourself before God. What is the mercy of God? Here it is. Though you and I are spiritually bankrupt. Let's be real here. Though you and I have not, we have not loved God like this. We have not loved our neighbors like this. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I didn't come as a teacher to show you how to justify yourself. He said what? He says, I came as the justifier to do what you could never do. Do you know what the gospel is? Listen, listen. Gospel is Jesus loved God perfectly. Jesus loved his neighbor perfectly. (laughs) And when you and I place our trust in him, that perfect record life of God, Jesus says, is yours as a gift. Good Lord. Can I get an amen? Is that good news? Good Lord. I mean, come on. Do you ever think about what this is? This is the reason why I do what I do every week. 
Do you realize that when God, if you are in Christ, when he looks at you right now, he actually looks at you as having loved God perfectly and loving your neighbor perfectly. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. This is the key to becoming a Christian, you guys. Unless you and I are crushed and convicted by the magnitude of the love that God requires, we'll never be humbled enough to receive the love God offers in the gospel. If you do not get this, you're sitting here this morning saying, I'm going to justify myself. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I need to do. And if the weight of what he needs you to do to accept, be accepted by God on your own, if that doesn't crush you, you're always going to look for a way out. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? This is the reason why I just want to, just give me a minute to say this. This is the reason why I've argued for years that Christianity actually is the most inclusive religion in the world. Why? Why? All the other religions basically say you need to be virtuous. You need to be moral. You need to be good. You need to obey the laws. But here's the problem with that. What happens to those of us that are not virtuous? What happens to those of us that are not very good? What happens to those of us that are not very good at obeying the law? What happens to those of us that are not very moral? What hope is there for us? Unless Jesus comes and says, I'll tell you what hope there is for you. It's not about your morality, but what I've done. It's not about your righteousness, but what I've done. And that means, check this out, anybody can come. Anybody. And secondly, how is this about loving well? After seven weeks, hopefully we're kind of, how is this about loving well? I'll tell you exactly how it's about loving well. Unless you and I are humbled by the gospel, we'll never be able to love difficult people, unlovable people. Why? Unless we are humbled by the gospel that says, I was so sinful, he had to die for me. How, how else are we going to turn around and go, if he did that for me, how could I not love this person here? And on the other side, the gospel not just humbles us, but it gives us confident joy. What do I mean by that? The gospel comes and says, not only were you so simply had to die for you, you're so valuable and of worth that he was glad to die for you. So we don't love other people out of some lack in us that says, me, me. We love out of an overflow of having been loved and saying, I don't need that. And I'm loving you out of love of Christ for me. You see how the gospel works. You see why without it, yeah, sorry, Helton, without it, it's impossible to love well. Come on. Anybody here have difficulty loving unlovable people? Do you really think you could, do you really think you and I could love unlovable people by just trying harder? Help us, Jesus. I'm telling you, unless the gospel pierces your heart and says, I was so sinful, he had to die for me. He did that for me. I'm glad he asked, by the way, who is your neighbor? Because that question actually was a hot topic in the early uh, first century. The, 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 the religious leaders were debating this question, who's my neighbor, who's my neighbor? And here's, here's how this guy and other teachers of the law would have defined who my neighbor was. Listen, check this out. They would have defined, here's who my neighbor is, as a fellow Jew who believes like me, who acts like me, who looks like me. That's my neighbor. And of course, Jesus was absolutely scandalous because this guy is going around and saying, these are my neighbors. And those people, in their eyes, did not qualify as neighbors. Why? He walked around going, prostitutes are my neighbors. He's saying, tax collectors are my neighbors. He's saying, Gentiles are my neighbors. He's thrown these spiritual bombs. And these people are like, that's absolutely heretical. Uh, I, it dawned on me. Do you think in our culture, society, and world today that this is a very important question to ask? Who is my neighbor? Hello. Furthermore, do you see what happens when people come and say, here's how I define my neighbor. Do you believe like me? Do you look like me? Do you act like me? Who's your neighbor? Who are we responsible for? Uh, <clears throat> are Muslims our neighbors? 
are atheists who live next door to us, our neighbors? Is there a more important question than for Christians to answer that in the way of Jesus today? I'll come back to that in a little bit. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. In the first century, there were two ways that you can tell. Are you with me? Are you against me? Two ways you could tell. Are you part of my group? Are you part of that group? Two ways. You know what they were? How you dressed and how you talked. And Jesus gives us Two very interesting details in this story. The man is half dead and he's stripped naked. So, first of all, the man can't what? Talk. So, you can't talk. The, the listeners of Jesus say, wait, 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 Jesus, hold on, hold on. He can't talk. We don't know who he is. Jesus going, I know, that's the point. He's also stripped naked, which means what? He can't tell from his dress. So the two ways, the two ways that people identified, are you with me or not? Us versus them. Are you my neighbor or not? The two ways have been completely obliterated by Jesus. Jesus' point is, we don't know who this man is. Here's who this man is. All he is, is a human being created in the image of God. Worth dignity. That's all we know. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, so to a Levite, when he came to the place where he saw him, passed by on the other side. Oh, no, sir. I'm just, I'm just trying, you know, I'm sure they did it politely. By the way, by the way, uh, here's what is happening here. The temple in Jerusalem, the center of worship, the center of temple worship, Okay. 17 miles, I wish I had a map to show you, 17 miles down the mountain was the city of Jericho. There are three groups of people that served in the temple in two-week rotations. Three people, the priests, the Levites, and Jewish laymen called the delegation of Israel. So these guys lived in Jericho, and they would go up to Jerusalem, the temple, serve two-week rotations, and they would go home. This was known to everybody at the time. So these are the travelers that are going down. Now, it's at this time, if you've heard this story, who doesn't know the whole, be a good Samaritan. Help out on the side of the road. Be a good Samaritan. But it's at this time that uh, priests and the Levites get a bum rap. You know what I mean? The story moral, the story is, don't be like them. Be like the Samaritan. But you got to understand the context that these people were working in, okay? First of all, it required enormous risk. What do I mean? Jesus didn't put them in just any old road. The road that they're on was also called the, the past of blood. It was a certain stretch of the road in the 70 mile where they were known to be vicious attacks and people were regularly killed or robbed. Past of blood. It'd be kind of like uh, the worst part of Chicago at 3 o'clock in the morning with all the streetlights completely out and you're driving through it, do you get out at three o'clock in the morning to help somebody? You should. Would you? If the guy is still alive, the priest and Levi are going, the robbers are probably still here somewhere. It could mean the risk of their lives. What about sacrifice? Enormous sacrifice. You got to understand the context, right? Here's what we find in Leviticus. Here's what we find in Leviticus about what God said about priests and Levites. Leviticus 22.3. Say to them, for the generations to come, if any of your descendants is ceremonially unclean, which was a big deal for them, and yet comes near the sacred offerings that the Israelites consecrate to the Lord, that person must be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. 
If a descendant of Aaron has a defiling skin disease or a bodily discharge, he may not eat of the sacred offerings until he is cleansed. He will also be unclean if he touches something defiled by the corpse. If you're a priest, being ceremony unclean is an enormous deal. Uncleanliness at serious ramifications for you. How did you become unclean? Two ways. Contact with the dead corpse made you unclean. Is that detail important for this story? Hmm? Contact with the bodily discharge also made you unclean. Is that important for this story? And did you notice the penalty for a priest who came unclean? He says, uh, God says, he may not eat of the sacred offerings. People of Israel would give offerings to the temple and some of it would go to the poor and some of it went to the priests where they used that to feed themselves and their families. But if you became unclean, you didn't have access to the offerings, which means you couldn't eat, your family couldn't eat, your servants couldn't eat. And oh, by the way, I did some research. So what would happen if a priest decided, I'm unclean, but I'm going to serve anyway? I found this little gem in early first century rabbinic writings. His brethren did not bring him to the court, but the young man among the priests took him outside the temple court and split open his brain with clubs. Just being accused of being unclean would have been a frightening prospect. Acting with compassion meant enormous risk and enormous sacrifice. Now, if you're a Jew in the audience, we've got to move on. Who are you expecting next to come down the road? Jewish Bethany's paying attention this morning. The priests, the Levites, and who? The Jewish laymen. And isn't it so like Jesus? Verse 33. But uh, as he traveled, came where the man was. Some of you know the Samaritans were absolutely hated by the Jews. Samaritans were a previous generation of Jews who had intermarried foreigners and adopted pagan idolatrous worship. The Jews derisively called them half-breeds and actually considered them the worst of all human races. A couple quotes in the early rabbinic writings about how Jews felt about Samaritans. There are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not even a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Sire and the Philistines and the stupid people living in Shechem. Shechem was a city in Samaria. Here's another one. He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like the one that eats the flesh of the swine. Verse 33. And when he, though, saw him, he was moved with what? Say it with me. And that word compassion in Greek literally is the word splachna, from which you get the word spleen. It literally describes inward parts. In other words, this guy has a gut reaction. It's the word most often used to describe the emotional state of Jesus. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, says, compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. Compassion means full immersion. It's utter and total identification with them. And how does the Samaritan do this? We'll finish the story. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And by the way, there are no inns in the desert. The closest inn is in the city of Jericho, a Jewish town. 
Can you imagine a Samaritan riding into a Jewish town with a half-dead Jew on the back of his horse? Verse 35. The next day he took out two denarii, which is two months' wages, a lot of money, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. We know from the parables of Jesus that unpayable debt could result in imprisonment. So this guy is basically, by Jesus saying, I'm paying his two months' rent so that when he is well, he'll be able to walk away a free man. So let's review. In spite of the enormous disruption to his personal schedule, for a bitter sworn enemy, he risks his life not once but twice. He provides immediate medical help, transportation to a place of safety at an enormous cost to himself, two months' wages, until he recovers. Can I just apply this real quick? If you and I are going to be serious about living the way of Jesus and loving our neighbor, please be prepared to have your life disrupted. There is no way to love well conveniently. Can I get an amen? If you're not married yet, or you're not having no relationship yet? There is no such thing as loving someone as long as I am comfortable and convenient. The very essence of, the very essence of love says it will be uncomfortable and inconvenient. There is no way to follow the way of Jesus and to love well. Why? Because here's what it means when you and I sign up to follow Jesus. We are signing up and saying yes to God's right to direct people our way based on his directives and their needs and not our convenience and our comfort. If the value, the highest value of our lives, and I'm talking to myself, if the highest value in my life is comfort and convenience, I will never be able to love well because being a Christian means, God, send anybody my way according to your directives and their needs and not on my schedule or my convenience. Are you ready for that? Am I ready for that? Students from Ohio, navigators folks, you're here just for a week, right? Can I tell you what's going to happen? If you truly follow the way of Jesus, God will disrupt this nice little tidy schedule you have. And it's up to you whether you get up in the morning and say, God, disrupt my schedule today to be the hands and feet of Christ. Send anybody my way so I can love them well. You'll never forget that lesson. And the rest of us, The rest of us, can we just admit this morning that we can't love well because we like convenience and comfort too much? You can't love somebody on your terms. It's got to be on theirs. It entails sacrifice. It'll cost you time, space, resource, and your life. Verse 36, I gotta, I gotta try and finish up here. Which of these do you think? Now check this out, guys. Say this to the following with me. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? In other words, check this out. Jesus totally reframes the question because if you go, who's my neighbor? You get to choose. But Jesus goes, wrong question. Here's the question we need to wrestle with today. Ready? Who can I be a neighbor to. And the answer to that now, all of a sudden, becomes what? Anybody in need. Who can we be a neighbor to? That's the question when we're talking about loving well. Who can we be a neighbor to? The answer is anybody in need. Jesus radically redefines our neighbor. It's anyone, unlike the religious leaders of the day, 
Who says my neighbor is religious terms. My neighbor is ethnic terms, racial terms, or even geographical terms. Jesus says, no, it's anybody in need. So the question becomes, who do you need to be a neighbor to when you ask, who can I love well? Often our neighbors, can we just admit, are people that we like. I have no problems loving people that I like. I like helping people that I like. But what about people you don't like? Here's another way to ask that question. Not only people we like, but who is least like you? Who is least like you? Because not only are we prone to help people that we like, we're also prone to help people that are like us, ethnically, racially, educationally, socioeconomically. So all of a sudden, when you ask, who can I be a neighbor to? Who can I be inconvenienced, taken out of my comfort zone to love well? All of a sudden, it's Muslims from Syria that become our neighbors. It's that atheist neighbor down the street or down the dorm become my neighbors. It's that person with a different sexual orientation whose lifestyle I fundamentally disagree with. They become my neighbors. Yeah, and uh, it's... uh, People who are voting for Trump. For some of you, that's your neighbor. It's people voting for Bernie Sanders. For some of you, that's your neighbor. And then Muslim. Don't don't sit here and go, "Well, well, well, that's easy. No, no, no. Who? Do you not like? Who is least like you? Jesus, of all the people in that entire culture, takes Jews and Samaritans, the two most hated people, to illustrate his point. To say, who can you be a neighbor to? Now normally, uh, the sermon would end right about now, and some of you are maybe hoping I would, and go, so let's be compassionate and merciful but, but today, but today, actually, actually, today, today, there's even a tougher question. Oh, you thought that was tough. Verse 37. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy. Do you know why that's important? The Samaritan is so hated by this Jew he can't even have the name Samaritan rest on his lips for a moment. The, the one. So here's a question. Who can you be a neighbor to? You ready? You ready? Who do you hate? Here's a question. Whose name do you have a hard time saying? See, don't feel bad for the lawyer. You and I are in this story, church, family. Who, whose name? Or or the thought of that person, who is it? Maybe it's somebody who divorced you. Maybe it's someone who betrayed you. Maybe someone who stabbed you in the back. Maybe it's that person that said that thing about you. Maybe it's someone who abandoned you. Come on, come on, come on. Stay with me just for a little bit. Stay with me. Maybe it's a pastor, a religious leader. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a former spouse or former girlfriend or boyfriend. Who, when you think of that, come on. When you rigorously on, when you think of that person right now, there's something inside of you that says, <gasps> "Whose name do you have a hard time right now saying?" See, Proverbs ten twelve: hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all things. So here's what happens. We say something to someone that we don't like, right? And then that person and goes and does what? Tells someone else that thing that we said that we didn't like. So all of a sudden, this thing that started out with one and one, all of a sudden now is one against five people. You know that this is an issue for you in your life if when you walk into a room, the only thing you care about is who's with me and who's not. 
Who's on my side and who's not? That's all you care about. You could care less about truth and reconciliation. All you care about is, are you with me? Are you for me? Are you on my side? Is there somebody you're like that with? Proverbs 15, 17. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. Fattened calf was a sign of luxury. It means you've made it. Uh, you could be right now with the job you want, the house you want, the marriage you want, the car you're driving, but you could be the most miserable person on earth. Why? You haven't forgiven. You were angry. You're bitter. Have not resolved that. Proverbs ten eighteen. Whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. And what this is saying is what happens when we're not honest about how we're feeling is we start lying. Do you know what that's like? First to yourself and then to other people. We start saying stuff like, uh, Peter is preaching about this, but it's got to be somebody else because uh, this clearly isn't my issue. I'm over it. But you're not over it. You're not over it. Some of us, how you've been coming to church for weeks, months, years, and you are sitting here saying, that doesn't bother me. Look what it's doing to you. I'm over it. You're not over it. And what happens when we start lying to ourselves is we start lying to other people and it results in slander. Are you rigorously honest? And you're sitting there going, but I wish I was over it. But you're not. You haven't forgiven. You haven't forgotten. You haven't reconciled. It's there. You can't even say their names. And when someone brings them up, something inside of you just says, don't talk about her. Don't talk about him. You are not well. What do we do? One, and I ask you guys to be rigorously honest. Hang in there and be rigorously. I need you to be courageous. One, admit it. Can you admit it? Again, all of this is about loving well and becoming emotionally mature, spiritually mature. Can you admit it? We think that Christians aren't supposed to admit these icky, yucky feelings. Can we just all, can we just all agree today, church, that being able to admit how we really feel and the way that we've been hurt it's okay that it's pure garbage to say, well, spiritual people just don't feel like that. Can we just all agree to that? Some of us, you've been here for six, seven weeks. Some of us are at that critical point where you're saying, can I truly admit to myself and to people that I trust that I'm not okay, that there's a relationship that's not okay? I hate her. I haven't forgiven. I'm still angry and bitter, and I'm not okay with that. Can we admit it? Can we truly admit it to ourselves, first and foremost? And to God, can you admit this morning, church, and some of you, this happened just this morning. This happened. That person wronged me. That person said this about me. Hate is in me. Freedom starts when we can be rigorously honest to say, I feel this way and I need to admit it. Two, explore it. What do I mean by that? And church, I don't mean to be curtain short with this. You need to do this in community. You need to do this in community. Don't explore it by yourself. In community, maybe ask this question. And I'm just going to speak for myself. When there is something about somebody that really, really, really bothers me, deep down inside it's because I'm afraid that what I hate about them might be true of me. So when I'm really angry at my dad, really angry, unreasonably angry, just angry, Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes it's because what I hate about him might be true about me. Are you willing to go there? I mean, are you willing in community to say, what do you think? And third, reclaim the humanity so that we don't lose our own. What do I mean? Here's what hate does to me. Hate blinds me from seeing their humanity. You know what that means? That means I begin to see people purely for what they've done and not who they are. So all they are is just doer of wrong. You're just the person that divorced me. You're just the person that rejected me. You're just the person that left me. You're just the person that slammed me. That's all you are. You're what you've done. And I, and when I don't see them for being human beings, something happens to my own humanity. And here's the thing too. Can I just say this? How many of us in this room wants to be solely remembered just for what we've done? 
We can't hold others to a different level of accountability. Do you see what's underneath the anger? How many of us have just been carrying this stuff around and you've been here week after week talking, listening about emotional spirituality, and week after week, it's coming to it's coming to this critical climax where you're going, I hate her, I hate him, I haven't forgiven, I'm still angry, I'm still bitter. I haven't acknowledged, I haven't admitted it. I don't see them as people. I just see them for what they've done. So how do you, how do you, how do you do this? Uh, Today I'm going to ask you to do something. Some of you, this may be too much. I'm putting myself out there. Some of us need to do a holy ritual, a sacred ritual. In your bulletins was given an index card, a sacred ritual. Listen, a sacred ritual of that person's name. Or it may be a group of people writing it down as a way of saying, God, I don't want to carry this anymore. God, I don't want to carry this anymore. I want to grow mature, spiritually, emotionally. I want to be free. And maybe, maybe for some of us, you don't have to do it. I implore you to do it. Maybe for some of us, this morning, after week after we've been here, it starts with us saying, I'm going to write their name. Or like I said, for some of us, it's a group of people. It's a group of people. We write it down. And at the end of the service, you come up, and you put it in, nobody's going to look at it. Nobody's going to look at it. You put it in this basket as a holy, sacred ritual of saying, God, I don't want to carry it anymore. I need to be healed. And last of all, you've got to remember Jesus. If you're going to do that, you have to remember Jesus. What do I mean? Let's finish. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. How do you do that? So here is a question that Jesus, some of you are already writing, and this is hugely encouraging to me. Everybody, can you look up here? Can you look up here for a second, please? Just give me two minutes of your attention, please. How do you, because here's the thing, if you're sitting there and you've not accustomed to new community, you sit there going, dude, what you're asking me to do, that's like impossible. I know, it is, apart from Jesus. Because here's the entire point of the parable. Jesus is coming and saying, hey, what if that was you bleeding on the room? Dying. And and what if the only hope for you was an act of mercy from a sworn enemy? Who not only deserved not to, but they would say, you deserve the opposite. Matter of fact, I'm going to get off my horse. I'm going to kick you a few times just to make sure you're good and dead. What if that was you and me on that road bleeding? And our only hope was an act of mercy from a sworn enemy who gave us what we didn't deserve. What do you think happened on the cross? What do you think happened this Friday? What do you think Paul means when he says in Romans chapter 5, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And listen to this. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Is this good news to anybody? The whole point of this story is Jesus is the good Samaritan. And he saw you and me bleeding on the side of the road and our only hope for life was an act of mercy by someone that we were an enemy to. And he not only got off his horse but he fully immersed, he 
fully identified as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. For God took him who had no sin to be sin for us. In Jesus Christ, on Good Friday, for his sworn enemies, without leaving us bleeding on the side of the road, Jesus covers us, sheds his own blood, not just at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And I'm telling you and me, Unless you and I are stunned into silence by this radical, costly love of Jesus. Unless we are stunned and crushed by the magnitude of the enormity of his love. You will never, I will never be able to love our neighbors well. We can't. We can't. Is this real to you? Is this real to you? Has the magnitude of what he's done, is this real to you? And is it any wonder that we have a difficult time answering the question, who can I be a neighbor to? Before you can be a neighbor, you need to be neighbored by him. Some of you will be tempted to walk out here today going, not going to do it. Not going to do it. I don't care what you say. I don't care how much you scream and yell. I'm not going to do it. It's okay, but if you're ready today to not carry this anymore, don't leave this place without doing it. Have you been stunned into silence by the love God requires? I was going to wait until the end of the sermon. But if some of you are ready to do this now, like you've... I'm going to ask CC to come on up. Take that in next card. Nobody's going to see it. It's between you and God. Come on up. You have... From now until we do offering and after the offering, I've asked CC and the worship team for about five, seven minutes to just lead post-worship. Oh, church, I'm asking you to be rigorously honest and to be courageous today. More than you might have ever had to do in the past. But you sit as long as you like. And you pray as long as you need. When you're ready. When you're ready. When you're ready. Prayer team, if you guys come on up and take your usual spot near the cross. Come on. Dare I say, for some of us, it's groups of people. It's groups of people that we've despised, we've hated, looked down upon. Come on, church. I appreciate some of you guys 
and your rigorous honesty and your courage. rest of the worship we're going to pray for offering because I do want some of you guys to be able to go to the fellowship hall and enjoy worship and fellowship before I wrap this time up for this anybody else by this? Yeah. Okay. All right. Carlton's the boss. So he says, wait a few more minutes. I will do that. that service is going to end I'm going to go ahead and pray for our tithes and our offering and then right after This is a critical, critical week in the life of the church, the last week on planet Earth for Jesus. Do some business with God, will you? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. Father, maybe I'm a a person of small faith, but I wasn't expecting the enormity of this response today. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for people whose hearts are soft to listen and to hear. For the rest of our remaining time, Holy Spirit, will you continue to speak, continue to convict, comfort, heal, restore, challenge. as we give our tithes and our offerings to you, we remind ourselves that everything belongs to you. Everything has been given by you. And everything, everything is for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. With that in mind, God, we give radically, sacrificially. Trusting in your goodness, trusting in your sovereignty, trusting in your power. Be exalted, be honored, be glorified.